good morning, everybody. My name's Beth Faisal. I think I know everybody here, but I'm usually over yonder in the traditional service. I'm one of the associate pastors, and it is my privilege to be with y'all here in Intersection. Thank you, Georgia and Daniel. It's always great to meet new people, and it's wonderful to hear new voices. Amen. So y'all give them and give God a hand clap of praise. And thank you, uh, Elizabeth, for the children's moment. Uh, that was great. One of my favorite times uh, in, in worship are the children's moments. Well, our scripture lesson this morning comes from Matthew's account of the gospel. And if you would stand in body and or spirit as you are able to do so in honor of the reading of the gospel. I'll be reading from Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and the first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. My brothers and sisters and beloved friends, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you. You may be seated. Would you bow, would you bow with me as we go again to God for a moment of prayer? Holy and gracious, loving and almighty God. Lord, this is the day that you've made and we rejoice and are glad in it. Lord, you say your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our paths. And Lord, today as always we pray that your will would be done, your perfect and holy will. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else but your will, O oh Lord. And we ask these things, not in our name, but in the name above all names, Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, who sits at your right hand, Almighty Father, and with God the Holy Spirit, one God, true God, our God, now and forever. Amen. Well, I'm excited about a new year. I don't know if I'm real excited about the coming cold weather on Tuesday, but we'll take that, but I love a new year, a new start, a fresh start. I'm excited about all the new things that God is doing here at St. Matthew's in us and through us, and if you're like me, in spite of us. Uh, I'm excited about this series. Again, I think it's a great idea to start off the year on what it is that we, we believe uh, most of you know that I grew up in another denomination, and I am a second career pastor. I was a returning adult student or non-traditional. That's just the polite, politically correct term for saying, yeah, you got an old lady uh, in your class. Uh, God has a sense of humor. I, was, I became a grandmother and a caregiver and turned 50 the same year I started seminary. That was 10 years ago, so uh, even I can do that math. So I'm thinking, okay, God, what's next? I turned 60. What are we, we going to do now? Just please don't make it skydiving because I'm scared of heights. But anyway, 
Again, I'm a second career pastor. I grew up in another tradition, but my husband and I joined the United Methodist Church in Greenwood, uh, Greenwood first, when we started our careers in mental health uh, years ago. But when I really started to sense God's call, well, I was in high school, but when God was saying, okay, you got to do this, you, you've been running, I've been telling you, but I kept tell, making all kinds of excuses, you've got to do this. All right, God. So I mustered up the courage to write a letter to the district superintendent at that time, Giles Lindley, who some of you may know. And then I went into the Cokesbury store when it was a brick-and-mortar store on County Line Road, and I purchased my very first copy of the Book of Discipline. And I won't ever forget seeing a, a re now retired pastor in there who looked at me. I said, hey, Beth, good to see you. And he looked at me very seriously and said, are you okay? And I said, well, yes, I'm fine. Why? Are you having trouble sleeping? And I said, well, you know, I've never been a good sleeper, but no, not really. Uh, why do you ask? He said, well, I see that you bought a book of discipline. You know they make medications to help you sleep. You don't really need a discipline. It's not quite that dry, uh, but... So I, I bought that book of discipline. I took a semester of polity and doctrine and one of history. But it's very important that we understand some things. I'm not suggesting that you go out and uh, go online and buy a book of discipline unless you want to do that. It is available online. But theological reflection is important. Whether or not you think you do it, you do. Theology you may think, oh, well, I don't do theology. You know, that's the stuff that they do in all those... Uh, high churches, but you do. Anytime we talk about God, think about God, sit around and talk in Sunday school or around a cup of coffee, we're doing theological reflection, and it's important. The theology, what does that mean? Pertains to the study and knowledge of God. Doctrine is a set of beliefs, and it's important for Christian communities, really, any group of people that wants to be cohesive, to know who they are, who they are as a people, what they believe in order to accomplish their purpose or mission. You remember the text I read, a very familiar passage, after they heard that Jesus silenced the Sadducees. You know, Jesus had just told the Sadducees, the, which was the priestly elite group, uh, that they really didn't know anything about the scriptures. Because they had asked him about marriage and the afterlife. You know, if there's a man and, you know, you know he, and he is, he's married and he dies and so forth on the seventh brother. Which is interesting because they didn't believe in the afterlife anyway. But the Pharisees had heard, well, Jesus has just shut down the priestly, you know, the elite of the elite, the important class. Can't you just imagine that scene? Yeah, well, I guess he told them. So now the Pharisees come to Jesus, and they don't come with pure motives. Jesus knew exactly what was going on. They were trying to trip him up, as they like to do. He said, yeah, we're going to trap him. Lord, what's the most important commandment? See, one of them was a lawyer, an expert in the law, and he said, well, I'm going to trip him up. What's the most important commandment? And Jesus replied, the first one's like this. Love God. Love the Lord your God 
with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might. And the second is like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that's pretty straightforward, right? Love God with every fiber of your being. Love God with all your might. And love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, it's right there in black and white, or in some Bibles, in red, or on your screen. Pretty simple, right? Easier said than done. And it's not all that straightforward. You may remember Andy and Brian a few months ago talking about the Ten Commandments, and I love how Elizabeth uh, brought up the Ten Commandments. You know, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any graven images. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath. You know, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't kill, don't covet. But you'll see that, that if you distill it down even more, it's the love of God. God is a jealous God. Don't have any gods. You know, we don't think of, you know, it's not a temptation, I don't think, for anybody in here to worship a, a golden calf or a plastic cow or whatever. But to love God. Don't have any other gods before God. Don't steal. Don't kill. Don't covet. So that's love of neighbor. And pretty simple. Love God and love your neighbor. Neighbor, But we know that it is not, again, it's not so simple in reality. Theological reflection and doctrine help us as a faith community to understand what this means. And I think some of you might have read Andy's post on Facebook this week, and I agree with him that one of the greatest gifts of Methodism, and let me say, uh, we as United Methodists are not a perfect people. I remember when I first came to on staff here, Andy said, well, this is a wonderful wonderful church but you know we're not perfect and I said well that's a relief because I would mess it up when my little toe crosses the threshold but we have some gifts to offer one of the greatest gifts I think is our approach to theological reflection or the quadrilateral you might have seen on your connect card balance and I think that's one of the things we can offer again do we get it right all the time no no but we try well, John Wesley, who was the founder of Methodism, uh, some of you may know this, some of you might not, remained an Anglican priest until the day he died. He never wanted to start a new denomination. He didn't sit out and said, hey, I think I, I want to start a church and a denomination called the Methodist. No, he didn't want to do that. He was concerned about how one's faith and how one's beliefs shaped and transformed their actions and lives. You may have heard the uh, phrase, orthodoxy informs orthopraxy. You can impress your friends with that. Orthodoxy, or right beliefs, informs orthopraxy, which is correct practice. You know, what we believe is important because it shapes how we act, how we live out our faith. Again, if you want to learn a little more about our, our doctrine and our theological reflection, look under our theological task in the book of discipline. It really is kind of interesting. I promise it won't put you to sleep. So what is this quadrilateral we're talking about, or the four pillars, or the Wesleyan, or really the Outler quadrilateral? Well, the first is scripture. Methodists have always believed in the primacy of scripture and the authority of scripture. 
Now, there are differences in how people interpret. Um, it is a complicated process sometimes. And Andy and Brian will get into more of this. I'm, this is just the, to pique your interest and to get started. But we affirm the primacy and the authority of Scripture as contained in the Old and New Testaments. And then reason. That's the second. First of Scripture. And again, that's important, the primacy of Scripture. Reason. And although John Wesley, John Wesley was a man, called himself a man of one book. And that's Scripture. But John Wesley was a prolific reader. John Wesley read and wrote on just about anything he could get his hands on. I'm thinking, uh, when I was a kid at breakfast, I to to kill time and not do what I wanted, what my parents wanted me to do, I'd read the cereal box. I read everything I could get my hands on. I can just see John Wesley probably read a cereal box. You know, the Fruit Loop box, if he'd had one. John Wesley read everything. He believed in being educated, and he believed in having an educated clergy. That's why we have to go to seminary or a licensing school, sometimes both, and continuing education. It doesn't stop when you graduate. He believed in being educated, being informed, but he was a man of one book, Scripture first. And then there's tradition. You know, sometimes tradition gets a bad rap, and sometimes if it is used to be legalistic, or, oh, we have to do it this way, and this is the only way we can do it, and we can never break that tradition, then, yeah, maybe that's a problem. But tradition's a good thing. Think about family get-togethers. You know, it's just not Thanksgiving or Christmas at your grandmother's if you don't have your grandmother's banana pudding or pecan pie or her special recipe of dressing or whatever is a favorite. Or your traditions like we have here at Christmas, candlelight communion or the different ministries, Christ cupboard. You know, you can't have Thanksgiving, Christmas, and Easter without Christ cupboard or birthday gift. Those are traditions. Those are things that define us. Our practices, what we do. Tradition. Our forefathers and our foremothers had these traditions, and they've passed down to us in their beliefs and their practices as a gift. That's a good thing. So we've got Scripture first, the primacy and authority of Scripture. Reason. Again, God gives us a brain. God gives us minds, expects us to use them, or as my mama would say, use your head for something besides a hat rack. Anybody else ever heard that? I'm, I know I'm old. But use your head for something besides a hat rack. Yeah, think. It's okay to think. It's okay to ask big questions of God. God created everything, inspired the word, raised Jesus from the dead. God can handle my questions. So scripture, reason, then tradition, and then experience. John Wesley believed in a religion of the heart, a faith and beliefs, not beliefs as an intellectual assent, you know, because we know in Scripture that even the demons believe and they tremble. But that faith, that experience with God through the presence and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Remember Aldersgate, the experience John Wesley and his heart was strangely warmed. So that is how we do theology, if you will. Scripture, reason, tradition, and experience. So what is the purpose? Now that's, you're saying, well, gosh, that sounds awfully complicated. It really isn't. 
Again, we can think about things. We all have experienced God. We tell and share our testimonies. Well, you know, this is where God touched my heart, and this is how we did things. We worshiped a faith tradition. You know, this is what I thought. This is what I think when I read this passage. You do it anyway. Scripture, reason, tradition, and experience. So what's the purpose of all of this? Is it to do what the Pharisees were trying to do? To prove that they're right? What's the purpose of theological reflection? To say, okay, well, we're exactly right. We know everything about God, and they don't. Look at us. No, I've never met anybody that really liked to be wrong. That's tough. It's tough to admit when you're wrong. But the purpose is to know God, to love God. The purpose is to be where we can do what Jesus commanded, the greatest commandment, to love God. With all our hearts, all our soul, and all our might, every fiber of our being. And then because of that, it flows out of our hearts. Our hearts are so transformed, so warm, so changed, that we can't help but love others through our actions, our words, our deeds, and make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. And I know this sounds, it's easier said than done. There are all kinds of divisions and arguments over doctrine and beliefs. And some people are a little more uncomfortable with that. But I have told people everywhere I've ministered, I said, look, I said, I'm not going to brag. I did pretty well in seminary. I'm a nerd. I love books. Like I said, I read everything I could get my hands on when I was a kid. Seminary just about cured me of that. Mama said I was a professional student. Uh, I said, Mama, I think I've been delivered from that because of of seminary. But I love to read. I love to learn. And I did well. I was a good student. I was a nerd. But I don't know everything there is to know about God because I'm telling you, if I did, if I ever tell you that I know everything there is to know about God, please lock me up for your safety and mine. But if you find out, and of course this isn't going to happen, if you find out that it's true, then we're all in a lot of trouble. Because that God is not big enough. Our God is a big God, amen? But God is love. God wants us to know him. God wants us to think. God wants us to worship, to refer to Scripture, to experience God, keeping in mind what's the greatest commandment? Love God. Love him with all your being. Study. Experience God. Pray. Those spiritual disciplines. And when you do that, out of that, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And go and make disciples. Amen? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.